Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, insurrection in America as a Trump-supported mob breaches the U.S. Capitol. Is this a new low for the world's oldest constitutional republic? We're going to the Capitol. Will America be able to remove this stain from its global reputation? will devote the whole hour to talking about the issues swirling around the storming of the Capitol. The future of Donald Trump. Our incredible journey is only just beginning. The future of the Republican Party. And the future of the Republic itself. First with former Secretary of State Colin Powell, then columnists Ezra Klein and Ann Applebaum. Finally, the great historian, Eric Foner. But first, here's my take. The bad news about America is all around us. But there is good news hidden within it, or at least the chance for a renewal of America's promise. I don't want to sugarcoat the reality. We have lived through the most serious threat to the republic in 150 years. And it's not over yet. For all those who doubted that Donald Trump is a danger to American democracy, words I used in 2016, this week finally provided the smoking gun. In fact, the evidence was long in plain view. The Wall Street Journal's editorial page, The Guardian of American Conservatism, consistently ridiculed worries about Trump's autocratic tendencies. A year into his presidency, it opined that his tenure must be terribly disappointing to the progressive elites who a year ago predicted an authoritarian America because Mr. Trump posed a unique threat to democratic norms. It claimed that all Trump could really be accused of was excessive rhetorical attacks on the media. Senior Republicans refused to even make such tepid objections. Critics like Lindsey Graham quickly morphed into sycophants, eager to encourage Trump's worst impulses. Now, some of them are shocked, shocked to discover that Donald Trump was an autocrat after all. 
During the pandemic, many conservatives pointed out that Trump did not use the crisis to expand executive authority, which proved that he had no authoritarian tendencies. But this misunderstands authoritarianism. Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt both used souped-up authority to save the nation from dire emergencies. That did not make them tyrants. You see, an autocrat seeks power for himself to strengthen his own hold on the office and destroy his enemies. Putin accumulated power not so that he could provide social security to Russians, but to ensure that no one could ever challenge him. After the 2020 election, most Republican leaders remained silent as Trump spread cancerous lies and conspiracy theories. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, like most Republicans, refused to acknowledge that Joe Biden had won the election for weeks and declared that Trump was 100 percent within his rights to mount all his court challenges. But the fact that one can use certain legal mechanisms does not mean that one should. Norms are as important as laws. The erosion of democracy in other countries, from Hungary to Turkey to India, has taken place for the most part through entirely legal means. Senators like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, both well-trained constitutional experts, use clever reasoning and legal mechanics to subvert democracy itself, proving that a fancy education does not ensure that you will act ethically. And just hours after the attempted insurrection on Capitol Hill, they, along with six other Republican senators and 139 members of the House, voted to support the demands of those insurrectionists. Those demands, the overturning of a certified free election, are every bit as seditious as was the run on the Capitol. So why, after all this, do I see some hidden good news? Well, first the insurrection ultimately failed. Order was restored and within hours the results of the November election were certified. In fact, this week's chaos has put the rebels on the defensive. Most prominently, the leader of the insurrection, Trump, who two months after the election finally pledged an orderly transition. It's also finally led some Republicans to stop coddling Trump. Perhaps they've come to recognize that tax cuts and judges are not worth the shredding of democracy. More likely, they have seen that under Trump's watch, the party has lost control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. For four years, I've wondered when the Trump fever would break. When, I wondered, would people see that he was not some comical figure, but a narcissist and a demagogue, stoking racism and hate deeply at odds with the democratic character of this country? Well, this week it might have happened. You don't need the whole country to snap away. When Nixon resigned, a quarter of Americans still supported him. But you need enough that it resets the norm. Perhaps we had to go over the edge to climb back. When I was growing up far away from America in the 1970s, I found myself following events there with intense interest. Those years were filled with turmoil. The United States suffered its first major military defeat. The president resigned in disgrace and the Soviet Union was poised to take advantage of its rival superpower's weakness. Yet despite it all, I still felt a deep attraction to America. The chaos and disruption were evidence of an open society in the midst of great change, a place that showcased all the anger and turmoil that came with wrenching dislocations and transformations. But these things were also the signs of a country airing its problems 
and facing up to its challenges, a place that, having weathered that storm, would find new resilience, energy, and strength. It's then that I decided to come to America. I would do it again today. Go to cnn.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. It is my great pleasure to bring in Colin Powell, the former Secretary of State, former National Security Advisor who served 35 years in the U.S. Army and retired as a four-star general. Um, Secretary Powell, I never, never knows whether to say General Powell, Secretary Powell, Your Excellency. Um, let me Thank ask you, you <laughs> let me ask you, is this a moment for accountability or is this a moment for healing? Because the two can't really happen simultaneously. This is a moment for accountability to place blame on people who have done things that are wrong. And at the same time, I think it is something for accountability because there are a lot of people who did not demonstrate that they were using the accountability they had. But I have no fear for our country. We'll come out of this. We now have three bodies that are all in the same party. We have a guy who's going to be the president of the United States, who I've known for many, many years, and will give a completely different rationale to what a president does. And so we'll come out of this okay. But we've got to get Mr. Trump clearly out of this entirely. He's going to be gone one way or the other by next week. And the sooner the better, whether it is just a relief he takes for himself or it's an uh, impeachment or just leave, retire, resign, retire. And so he's going to be gone. And then we will start again. The big challenge we're going to have is how do we convince all of our citizens, and not just those of us who you know, might be called progressive, how do we convince all of our citizens that we have to start changing our society again? We cannot have people that are running around with guns the way they run around now. I saw in one of the state houses a whole line of guys with machine guns. Why are they allowed to do that? Why is that acceptable? I've also seen some things from the very beginning of the Trump administration that convinced me that this is not the kind of guy for me. And that was when he launched his tirade against Mr. Obama, who he said was uh, born in another country. We knew he wasn't born in another country. It was obvious. It was provable. But it took us, some, I think it was a year and a half or two years before Trump finally agreed to it. Why? Because he was using it. He was using it as a way of saying, this guy's a black guy, so let's keep talking against him. And we've got to change all of that. We've got to get back on a track where Americans feel strongly about our society. We are all democracies, small d people, Democrats, and we'll get back. I have such confidence in our country, so confidence in our ability to come through this crisis as we have come through many other crises in the past. But I'm concerned that we don't bring, that we do bring, make sure we bring along all of our citizens. So this gives us a challenge. How do we talk to that portion of our society that voted, you know, a huge percentage went for Mr. Trump? Well, Mr. Trump isn't there anymore. And so we've got to help them to come back and join the rest of us. Let's argue with each other. Let's debate each other. But let's remember we have to love each other. That's who we are. We're Americans. And we have something to be proud of. We've got to make the rest of the world proud of us as well, as they have been for so many years before. 
Let me ask you uh, to just pick up on what you said at the start, Colin, which is, um, you know, Donald Trump is not going to resign. So would you support uh, impeachment? And if there were an impeachment, you know, the House is likely to do it. If you were a senator, would you vote to convict? Of course I would. I would vote to convict. I would have done it, you know, last time if I had the opportunity. Um, but I'd be surprised if we can get an impeachment through uh, or, you know, a press or re a relief on his part or uh, anything else. 25th Amendment. Uh, it's only about, a, you know, a little over a week left. And so all I know is that next, the end of, toward the middle of next week, uh, he's going to be gone. Uh, let me ask you about something. You've been critical of Trump from the start, from the campaign, and for all, in my, my, my view, the right reasons. You watched your fellow Republicans, people you knew, people you'd worked with, uh, cozy up to him, uh, re refused to condemn him, thinking, you know, they'd get away with it, they'd get his support. Um, do you feel like that, that dynamic has broken? Do they realize that, in a sense, they caused, they, they, they encouraged at least this, this wildness to grow and grow? They did, and that's why I can no longer call myself a fellow Republican. You know, I'm not a fellow of anything right now. I'm just a citizen who has voted Republican, voted Democrat throughout my entire career. And right now I'm just watching my country and not concerned with parties. Um, and so I do not know how he was able to attract all of these people. Uh, they should have known better, but they were so taken by their political standing and how none of them wanted to put themselves at political risk. They would not stand up and tell the truth or stand up and criticize him or criticize others. And that's what we need. We need people who will speak the truth, who remember that they are here for our fellow citizens. They are here for our country. They are not here simply to be reelected again. Come on, guys, you can make it in private life if you don't get reelected. But right now, we need you to be real Americans who we can trust, who will tell the truth, who will argue on the basis of facts and not just argue on the basis of what their primary looks like. Stay with me, Secretary Powell. Uh, when we come back, I will ask Secretary Powell about how the world is reacting to what happened and what we can do about it. Reaction from world leaders was swift and tough. Boris Johnson called the scenes at the Capitol disgraceful. Germany's Angela Merkel said they made her furious and sad, and she regrets that Trump didn't admit defeat in November. Her foreign minister tweeted, the enemies of democracy will be delighted at these terrible images. Justin Trudeau said America's neighbor to the north was deeply disturbed and saddened. Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, took the opportunity to criticize Trump personally, saying, when a sick person takes office, we see how he disgraces his country. Joining me again is former Secretary of State Colin Powell. Ever since you were Ronald Reagan's national security advisor, you have been involved in the process by which the United States would go to other countries and say, shore up your democracy, shore up your democratic institutions. This uh, has crossed the line. Do we have the moral authority to tell other countries to, to strengthen their democracy now? I think we are very weakened in that regard now, but I think we can get it back. Um, I always tried, even as a junior officer, to reach out to our allies and our friends and strengthen that friendship and let them know we are still the same America that brought them to where they are. 
have to remember where we came out of World War II, where the enemies we had became democracies and allies. And those allies still existed when I became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or Secretary of State. We have to show courtesy. We have to show respect. We have to show strength. But our strength can be tied to respect. It can be tied to friendship. It can be tied to friendship. There's no, there's no conflict there. But what we've been doing for the last four years is insulting people. Insulting people, leaving treaties that we had entered into, doing all kinds of things that do not do justice to the alliances that we've had for all these many years. And the people you just ran through, with the exception of Iran, do not understand it. And so they're walking away from it. They can't figure it out. No, it, it, can't be, it can't be figured out. We need to get back on track. And I think this is something we can do under the leadership of uh, the new president coming in. I think Joe Biden can help us with this and the people he's bringing in with him. This we have to restore. This is where our strength comes from, not just our weapons, not just our politics. It's the friendships we have. It's the allies we have. It's the people who respect us and look to us for the right approach to democracy and how to become more democratic as a people and as a nation and to demonstrate to the rest of the world we're still the America you fell in love with years ago. We're coming back. Um, you've said a number of positive things about Joe Biden. Um, tell us a little bit more. How, do you, how well do you know him? Uh, what makes you as confident as you are about him and his character? Well, Joe and I have known each other for, I guess, maybe 30, 40 years, something like that. And we've always been able to talk to each other. We've also done a few interesting things together. I think it's about a year and a half ago that we raced our Corvettes out at the Secret Service lot. He had a Corvette that was an old one, his father's, uh, that was rebuilt and was terrific. And I had a newer one, only two or three years old, that my children gave me. They made me pay for it, but my children gave it to me. And so in racing, mine could go a little faster. Uh, and I hung back to give then Vice President Biden a head start. And once he got his head start, made the turn, to come back to the finish line, that's when I would hit the, hit the pedal and I'd catch up with him. It was uh, one of those things, though, that when I caught up with him, um, not everybody wanted to see me to keep going and pass him. So that's where the, the video part chopped off. Um, and I've always been a little bit disappointed that they didn't show my entire race. But Joe and I had a great time that day. Uh, I chased him down streets in our Corvettes um, and he, he's just an average guy, but he's more than an average guy. He's a guy who's been a leader. He's a guy who knows our politics, knows our country, uh, and knows how to go after these challenges that we have as Americans. We're still Americans. I'm still the American that I came into the Army 60-something years ago. I'm disappointed in what we've been doing in recent years because that's not the America I know and love. The America I love, know and love is still there. We've just got to scrape off some of the stuff that's been on it for the last several years. And we also have to tell our fellow citizens that it's time to take another look at what you're doing. And the other thing we have to do is tell our Congress, you've got to get on it. You've got to start doing your job. We're counting on you to help us get back on track, to talk to your constituents about this. We need Congress to start doing what a Congress is supposed to do and not just worry about getting reelected next semester. 
Um, let me ask you finally, we don't have a lot of time. Do you, are, you, are you hopeful that the Republican Party will finally break with Trump? I think uh, yes, because he isn't going to be here. I would hope that the Republican Party, as they're moving away from this fellow who's no longer the president, I hope they would not let him back into the camp so he can demonstrate or say that, oh, I'm still here. I'm going to do it all. No, you're not. You're out. And act like you're out. Go to Florida. Go to wherever else you want to go. But Joe Biden is the president of the United States, and the party has to follow his lead and the lead of the vice president uh, and get moving on and restore ourselves and not go down a bad tube. And what we have to do is persuade Mr. Trump and those who have followed him all these years that you need to take another look. You need to really start working in terms of what's best for our country, not what's best for Mr. Trump. He's been serving himself for all these years, these four years, and before that. Uh, and this is the time for us to move away and get back to being good Republicans, but more importantly, just good Republicans, good citizens that work with other citizens of other age, of other uh, presidential uh, and other ambitions. But let's argue it out the way we're supposed to argue it out, the way it's been done all these years, and not have somebody who can actually stand up and claim that the election was a disaster and it was a lie. And now you've got to follow me and buy this story that it's a lie. It wasn't a lie. It was God honest truth. And we have the record for that. And we now have to follow that and not follow the lies that were put before us for the last several deep months. Always an honor to have you on, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Next on GPS, two great thinkers who have written two great books that can help us understand what just happened. Ann Applebaum and Ezra Klein, when we come back. My next two guests have written two of the most relevant books for helping us understand just what is happening to our country. Anne Applebaum's latest is Twilight of Democracy, the Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. She is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian and a staff writer at The Atlantic. Ezra Klein is the author of Why We're Polarized. He's a columnist for The New York Times starting this week, actually. Um, Ezra, let me ask you, uh, everyone is talking about how the people who rioted, the people who stormed the Capitol should be held accountable, should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. You wrote something interesting saying, well, that shouldn't really be our focus. Explain why. Yeah, so it is not that they shouldn't be held accountable. They absolutely should. But we should remember that the real villains here are the people who fooled them. They are marks. They were conned. And they were not conned by random folks on the street. The president of the United States told them the election had been stolen, that electoral politics had failed, had been made a mockery of that a landslide had been taken from them. And he wasn't alone. He was joined by the House Minority Leader, by more than a dozen Republican U.S. senators, by more than 100 U.S. congressmen, by every major conservative talk radio host, by the primetime lineup of Fox News. So these people were told that a tremendous crime had been committed. And the only thing for patriots do, to do was to mass and then 
to do something. Something was often left vague, although not always. President Trump saying, come on January 6th, it will be wild, isn't all that vague. So my concern or my argument here is not that we should not be prosecuting people who broke into the Capitol and potentially wanted to massacre U.S. members of Congress. Of course we should. But we can't only prosecute the weak and avoid accountability for the strong. We can't only prosecute those we can hit with the law while the powerful are protected by politics. And so not just Donald Trump, but Ted Cruz and John Hawley and, and Hawley and all these other folks get off because it would be too divisive to do anything uh, in terms of their accountability as well. Yeah, and as you point out, people often forget the, the ranking member of uh, Republican member in the United States Congress, Kevin McCarthy, was a fully paid up member of the wild conspiracy mm-hmm. theories on this front. Um, and I want to ask you about that, this dynamic that, uh, that uh, Ezra just described, where so many Republicans went along with Trump's crazy conspiracy theories and lies because they thought it was kind of a, a, a cost-free way for them to pander to his base. Uh, what could come of it? They were humoring him. And of course, what we've seen is that this kind of rhetoric does have a cost, that words are not empty, that you actually influenced a whole bunch of people, millions maybe, and certainly the, the tens of thousands who came to Washington. And you talk about exactly this phenomenon of the people who, uh, who get seduced by authoritarian, uh, authoritarianism, not because they believe the ideology, but because they are so covetous of the power of being close to power. One of the oddities of the modern Republican Party is that it is very divided, but the divide is not ideological in any traditional sense. It's not like there's a left wing and a right wing or a liberal and a conservative wing of the modern Republican Party. What we now have is a part of the party that's still dedicated to reality, to using politics to solve problems, and another part of the party that has exactly, as you say, Um, done a deal with the devil and decided that politics is about lying and it's about creating an alternative reality for certain kinds of voters to live in, you know, particularly gullible, um, particularly angry people to be attracted to and and to live in. Um, And that that and, and those politicians are not interested anymore in politics. They're interested in conspiracy theory. They're interested in culture wars. Um, they're interested in whipping up anger on social media and, and in other forms of media and in leading people down that path. And the decision, the argument within the party now is a really strange one. Um, as I said, who wins? Is it going to be reality? Is it return to politics, not even as normal, but just as functional? Um, or is a part of the party going to go off in that direction in, in the interest of its own power and in pursuit of anti-democratic goals. Um, You know, democracy requires, as you yourself have written, not just elections and not just institutions, but it requires norms and morality. Um, It requires all kinds of rules. Um, And it also requires a fact-based, evidence-based reality that people can talk about and debate. And without that, we can't have democracy. It just doesn't function. Ezra, so if you take what Anne was describing and you, 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 we confront the reality for the Republican Party that now the White House, the Senate and Congress and, and the House of Representatives are all controlled by the Democrats. In their view, elite cultural institutions are controlled by Democrats. 
they are going to feel more like their world is slipping away. You know, I've, I've always thought that to understand America now or that part of America, this wonderful book by a German historian called The Politics of Cultural Despair, this sense that your world is disappearing. Won't they become, isn't there a danger that they become more uh, fanatical because they think that their, their world is slipping away? There isn't just a danger, there's a near certainty. So I think you need to look at this moment as one of the most dangerous we're facing. As Anne says, the Republican Party is divided. Most people are not going to storm the Capitol. Most people are not going to become violent. But for those who are truly committed to Trumpism as both an ideological and a fantastical project, right, as this fantasy that you could regain total control over the country, to see it rupture, to see the conspiracies like QAnon rupture, to see simply Donald Trump's words rupture, to be told that Mike Pence could stop this great crime, and then he doesn't. It is in that moment of rupture, that epistemic break, that people can go, frankly, a little bit nuts. And we are seeing it now, right? That is why this is happening now. The storming of the Capitol happened now, because all these things that people were expecting would happen, that there was some great plan behind it, or Donald Trump wasn't really going to lose, or the states were not going to send those electoral college votes, it didn't happen. So what you may get is a Republican Party where much of it is, some of it is sort of normal. Some of it is what I would call abnormal, anti-system, um, but it's not violent insurrectionist. But then there is a, a core that is millions of people that is on the border or is violent insurrectionist. And the weaker they get, the more dangerous they become, the more they feel is being taken from them, the more is justified in response, the greater the crime, um, the more is demanded of patriots in, in, in reply. And that is, again, I, I continuously want to focus my commentary here on the Republicans who operate in that middle space, the Ted Cruz's, the Hollies, et cetera, because they're the ones creating the permission structure. They may not themselves support violence or say they don't, but so long as they're telling um, those folks over to even their right that what they believe has happened, this has been taken, this has been taken from them, this is a totalitarian society run by big tech and the left, they are justifying the worldview that leads quite logically to these kinds of acts. All right. Stay with us next. So what should Joe Biden do? I will ask Ezra and Ann. And we are back with Ann Applebaum of The Atlantic and Ezra Klein of The Times. Um, Ann, in your last piece in The Atlantic, which is terrific, you, you point out, I'd summarize it uh, by saying this, America's moral authority comes not just from what it has done in the world, but what it is, a, a model of a constitutional democracy. So that being tarnished, what can Joe Biden do to repair that? What would you advise him to do? I think there are two kinds of things that Biden can do. Um, one is at home. Um, you've asked several times on this program about the question of accountability versus moving on, um, which is interestingly the dilemma that uh, many Democrats face after the fall of a dictatorial regime. Um, and the answer is usually that you have to do both. You have to hold accountable people who violated the law. And at the same time, you have to find a way to change the subject. Um, you have to get Americans to talk about real issues that affect them, whether it's the economy or fixing the coronavirus or vaccines. You have to end the culture wars and end the hysteria and bring down the level of conversation. Um, and I think he intuitively understands that. That's what he did during the election campaign. But focusing people on real issues where there can be a real conversation about real things 
is very important. And abroad, what's also very important is that he, re not just that he reaches out to our allies and reestablishes America as a leading democracy, which of course he will do, um, but also that he uses that moment to do something concrete. You know, let's, let's talk to our allies about fixing the catastrophe of social media. Uh, you know, thinking about what do we want the democratic internet to look like? Let's talk to them about kleptocracy and ending the dark money that distorts all of our politics. Getting democracies to focus on real issues and not just repeating slogans, you know, aren't we great? We have freedom and liberty. Um, I think he can do that, and I hope that he will. Ezra, you know there's going to be a big debate in, within the Democratic Party about what Biden should do. Should you take this moment, which may be just two years, where you have the Senate and the House, and do something big? Should you go uh, do something more incremental? Should Joe Manchin be the, uh, the power broker in Washington? What's your advice? I'm writing a piece on this now, and it's very simple. Just help people fast. That's it. Everything you can do to help people fast, to reattach them to politics, to show them that it matters who is in charge, who is in government. It is notable that on the same day as the insurrection at the Capitol, what happened that reshaped politics that day was not that Trumpists took back the Capitol, which they didn't. It's that Democrats took back the Senate, which they actually did. So they are now going to have an opportunity to govern as a trifecta, as a governing trifecta. And they need to help people. They need to make that matter. They need to make it matter in clear and visible ways. They need to make it matter in a way where people know the government helped them, the Democrats helped them, and that politics matters beyond these symbolic collisions, beyond what they see on Twitter. It actually matters for getting things like vaccine rollout right, but also getting checks into their hands, getting health insurance more secure, getting climate change under control, and a hundred other things that need to happen. Democrats can't be too technocratic and clever. They can't wait too long to roll out their help. They can't get involved in gangs and negotiations forever. They just have to help people fast. So you have in the past been in favor of, uh, you know, electoral college reform or ending the filibuster or Puerto Rico, D.C. statehood. You would say, let that all take a back seat first. Just get get money out, fix problems fast. I wouldn't say that necessarily takes a back seat. Whether they can do it, we'll see. But particularly filibuster reform, getting rid of the filibuster or deciding to open up budget reconciliation in a new way is going to be necessary to legislate quickly. Process is policy in, in these regards. If you can't get anything from the Senate, you can't help people. So the idea that you can separate process and policy just isn't true. And I would say for the Joe Manchins of the world, if they think they're going to get reelected, if people don't like how Joe Biden and the Democrats govern, they're wrong. That was a mistake Democrats made, red state Democrats made in 2000 and they got wiped out in 2010. The way you get reelected if you're in a purple or red state is people think your party did a great job. They're not going to separate you from the president. They're going to judge you based on how they judge the president. Ezra Klein and Applebaum, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you both. Thank you. Next on GPS, the direct line that can be drawn from the days after the American Civil War to the mob's attack on the Capitol on Wednesday. When we come back, Eric Foner. Our democracy is under an unprecedented assault unlike anything we've seen in modern times. President-elect Biden was correct to add the time reference there, because in many ways this week's assault 
does have precedence further back in American history. That's why I have my next guest here, Eric Foner. He is one of the preeminent historians of America and particularly the Reconstruction period, the time after the Civil War, when the country was attempting to put itself back together and begin to deal with its racist legacy. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Uh, Professor, when you uh, think about this issue of elections that then occasion a violent reaction, uh, this is not the first time. There, there are many precedents in American history. I'm afraid that, that you're correct, of course, and particularly if you go back to the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, when African-American men in large numbers for the first time were granted the right to vote in America, you had elections which produced biracial governments, both the state level, local level, and you had a violent racist backlash against that by the Ku Klux Klan and similar groups, the White League, the Knights of the White Camellia, things like that. You had far more violent uh, uprisings than we saw the other day, shocking as those events were. Um, in Colfax, Louisiana, armed whites literally murdered dozens of members of a local black militia uh, in order to seize control of the government of that parish in 1873. If you jump forward, 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina had a biracial, democratically elected government and a sort of armed coup d'etat by uh, white supremacists uh, drove out the government and installed uh, white uh, Democrats uh, in their place. And that led directly to the disenfranchisement, taking the right to vote away from uh, black people in North Carolina. So yes, the effort to overturn democratic elections uh, didn't begin under President Trump, unfortunately, in our history. And of course, there is the most famous uh, violent reaction to an election, which was the election of Abraham Lincoln. Well, yes, that's at another level, of course. But, um, you know, at that time, the southern states eventually, um, you know, quite a few of them, uh, simply said, we're not accept. They didn't say that Lincoln hadn't won. They said, yeah, Lincoln won, but we do not accept that. We will not live under the rule of a person who is opposed to slavery. And that, of course, produced the Civil War, the greatest crisis in American history. It was quite a shock to me and to many other people to see the Confederate flag uh, paraded around in the Capitol the other day. The flag of treason, the flag of slavery, I can't remember when the Confederate flag was prominently displayed in the Capitol. Maybe it happened at some point or another, but it certainly shows you, as you had said a little while ago, uh, you know, people who do that are promoting abject racism. And of course, President Trump has identified himself with the uh, Confederate story uh, many times during his presidency. Somewhat obscured by all this uh, is another truly historic event, the elections in Georgia. What do you make of them? And as a historian, what do you think it says about how far we've come? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of days ago, we saw the clash of two elements, you might say, of the American tradition and American politics. One was the violent attempt to overturn an election, but the other was the election of an African-American man and a Jewish man to the Senate from Georgia. And anyone who knows the history of Georgia knows how remarkable that is. 
This was a state which had many lynchings of black people, which didn't allow blacks to vote for many, many decades, that where the lynching of a Jewish factory superintendent, Leo Frank, took place. Um, Anti-Semitism and racism have been deeply embedded in Georgia's political culture, so that overcoming that was a remarkable thing. And I, I agree with you. It is in, in all the darkness of what happened this week, there is this sign of optimism that people can change. They can overcome past prejudices. We're not just fixed forever in the prejudices of the past. And, you know, it took a lot of work. This didn't happen naturally. It took a lot of work by people like Stacey Abrams and her group to register black voters, to insist that they come out to vote, tell their relatives and friends to come out to vote. But they succeeded in making Georgia really, uh, uh, it's unprecedented that they have two Democratic senators like uh, of the background that the two are. So um, it shows that positive change is possible in this country, despite the events that we saw in Washington. Eric Foner, pleasure to have you on. And for all those who like this, uh, read Professor Foner's books, the one I mentioned at the start, but also his magisterial work, Reconstruction. Thank you, Eric Foner. Thank you, Farid. And thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Hi, I'm Olympic medalist Nelson Carmichael, and we're here on a really terrific Bluebird Day in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And I wanted to talk with you a little bit about skiing moguls and specifically absorbing and extending through the bumps. It's quite a bit different than just out on a groomed smooth run like this where you really don't have to absorb much. You get into moguls, the knees, the legs, the skis have to go up and down and the idea is to follow the terrain so you can control your speed. If you don't absorb, the bumps want to throw you out, your body goes over this way, that way, you get all hooked up and moguls might just spit you right out. So the idea is as soon as a bump comes up into your skis, you feel it in your tips, you want to pick your feet up. Use your hip flexors, use your knees, use your ankles, and pull your skis up into your body. Immediately after, it's going to drop away, and you want to push and extend, get your leg back straight again. That enables you to get your edge on the snow to control your speed, and also you want to straighten that leg so that it's ready to absorb the next bump. So both feet are going side to side, but they're also going up and down. It's something you can even practice at home or in the gym, maybe with box jumps up and over a top of box, hitting each time, or over a hurdle maybe, or that same motion on a trampoline, up and down, up and down with your knees. And as you're doing that, you can practice keeping your shoulders and your chest up while you're looking nice and forward. So it is a lot of motion in the moguls, but really I think that's part of the fun. You get that nice rhythm of side to side with your turns, but also up and down over each bump with your legs. Hope to see you out here in Steamboat. Hello viewers, I'm Stephen Cox, teaching professional here at PGA National Resort. Today we're on number 18 of the Palmer, and I've hit my shot into the bunker on the right-hand side here, where I'm really snug up against the side of the lip and even slightly embedded. 
This is a really difficult shot for most amateur golfers because we've been taught to open up our golf face and swing across the golf ball, which actually due to it being embedded and having an obstacle in front of us, it doesn't call for that open face and that slight over the top move because we don't really want to use a lot of the bounce at the bottom of the club. Or if we do, we may have caught a little too much of the golf ball and we end up on the other side in the other bunker. We actually want to use the face to get the ball up into the air. So the tip that we actually give golfers when we're snug up against this lip is we actually want to shut down the club face and point where the hosel and the leading edge meet right directly into the golf ball itself. So as I'm addressing the golf ball, I actually don't want to open the face. I actually want to close it down so that this turns into a digging tool to use the sand and get the ball up into the air. So as I address the golf ball, I'm going to close the club face and point where the leading edge and the hosel meet. And I'm going to drive that part of the club behind the golf ball the key that I want to make sure that I tell my golfers is that we don't need to swing very, very hard. We actually want to have good tempo and make a nice, small, soft swing. It pops the golf ball right out and gets it directly over this lip, which then lands very softly. This will help keep you on the green so that it doesn't roll over the back and go into the other bunker on the other side. Try this tip out when you go home to your golf course. This is CNN Breaking News. I'm Brian Stelter, and this is Reliable Sources, beginning with breaking news from Washington. President Trump heading toward impeachment for the second time. Democrats moving to begin the proceedings on Monday. Some Republicans even urging the president to resign in the wake of Wednesday's attack. Let us take stock of exactly where we are this Sunday. The nation is reeling from Wednesday's assault at the U.S. Capitol. The president who incited the attack is completely missing in action. Big technology companies believe he poses a threat to the public, so they have cut him off from their servers. He is invisible. He is not delivering statements, holding press conferences. He's silent. The executive branch of the American government seems paralyzed. Some White House aides have quit and others are thinking about quitting. The vice president, who was targeted by the president's mob, is also remaining quiet. The cabinet is invisible. A second impeachment of the president looks inevitable unless Trump resigns. Meantime, some of the attackers from Wednesday are being arrested and charged. Manhunts are underway. I am Ben Mankiewicz. On this season of The Plot Thickens, we're exploring the world of renegade movie director John Ford. Ford was a living legend, a cinematic giant, and also a notorious egomaniac who could unload on actors. You'll hear from the best of them, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, even Ricardo Montalban. Find out how Ford's legacy survives his personal demons. The Plot Thickens, Decoding John Ford, hosted by me, Ben Mankiewicz. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.